Thank you for those of you that are joining us on uh, uh, live right now. I just, somebody just told me five seconds ago, because our crowd's a little thin, that Virginia's playing Duke tonight. So maybe you're watching this on Facebook for the first 30 minutes before a tip-off. At least you caught some of it. But uh, the people in here either did not know that was happening or do not care that is happening, one of the two. Uh, you can put me in the second category. So, uh, I know, right? So anyway, um, we're, I'm grateful that you are here though. And uh, whether you're with us uh, in person or online, uh, look forward to another night of studying God's word together as we walk through the five solas uh, as a part of this uh, winter equip session. So let me uh, tell you what I'm doing tonight before we pray. Uh, just quickly, uh, last week we did the um, doctrine of uh, grace, uh, grace alone. We looked at grace, um, and this week we're looking at faith alone. And next week, I'm going to take both of those and do the kind of the historical and modern significance. So why did it matter as a part of the Reformation, and why does it still matter today? And, and that, that is a significant task. It's gonna, I'm going to have to move really quickly to be able to do both of those. Um, but I'm playing a little bit of catch up because we missed a couple of weeks and then we're trying to get done by the end of March. And so, uh, and we, we still have two more uh, of the solas remaining once we make it through grace and faith. And so we're going to combine that into one week next week. So if you came this week thinking I was going to talk about the historical and modern significance of grace alone, come back next week. I promise you we'll get to it. Uh, but we're going to do grace and faith because they really are uh, two sides of the same coin. And I'm even starting back with grace tonight here in just a moment, because it, you really can't get into faith without uh, moving through, kind of picking up where we left off in Ephesians chapter two last week. I do want us to pray together. Before we do that, let me just give you a quick update from our ladies who flew to um, to Rwanda. They got there a few hours ago. They sent me a text message, uh, I guess about two o'clock this afternoon, saying they had landed. It always takes a little while with all the COVID protocols and things you have to do. Uh, it took them about an hour and a half to get out of the airport, but they are um, at the at their house where they're going to stay for the week and resting. It was uh, a little bit of a challenge getting there. Every team we've sent in the last couple of years has uh, has had one unique challenge or another, and this one, um, this group had uh, fa found out that the the COVID test that they took, um, you have to take a COVID test before you go. We're, we're taking. 74 hours before their flight, and it had to be 72 hours before their flight. And, um, right? Because <laughs> that, that, that two hours. And we really don't think the airlines were correct because, well, we've done this before. But nonetheless, instead of arguing, they found a quick opportunity to get a COVID test at the airport and were able to do that and make their original flights and all of that. So uh, a little bit of a hiccup on the way, but they are now there. Uh, please like diligently pray for them over the course of this weekend. They're gonna be doing a lot. They're gonna be very busy Friday, Saturday, uh, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Um, several training opportunities on at least two, I think maybe three different occasions. They're going to be teaching through the Old Testament book of Ruth with women in different contexts in... Um, uh, women that they're doing a a, uh, a women's seminar at one of the seminaries that Josiah works at, works with. Uh, we've done these seminars before. This will be the first women's only one, and they're going to teach through the Book of Ruth. There's also a couple of churches that have invited them to do to do that with women in their churches. 
uh, along with spending a good bit of time with the women from Great Joy. And this is the first time that we've been able to do that. Great Joy Bible Church, the the church that we're planting there in Rwanda, um, and then helping Stephanie, who leads a couple of different women's Bible studies, going to be teaching alongside of her. So they they have an action-packed week. Uh, before traveling home uh, next next week, next Wednesday. So uh, be it, we're going to pray for them, but be it, I want you to make sure that you're in prayer for them this week as, as they're, they're working with the, uh, with the old family. So let's open in prayer, and then we'll get started tonight. God, I thank you for our opportunity to be together, to um, think about your word together, and to consider the role, um, the very important role that faith plays in our salvation, that I pray, God, we would leave tonight convinced in our hearts that it is not by works that we are saved, but it is by faith alone, and that from faith springs obedience, and obedience shows up in all kinds of works throughout our lives as you sanctify us into the image of your Son. And God, would you uh, help us to see your word clearly tonight. And we pray, God, for uh, Linda and Diane and Allison who are in Rwanda. We thank you, God, for overcoming the obstacles that were put in their path, uh, for seeing them through what I personally know are very long flights and uh, a lot of uh, details of, of trying to get to um, another country in the midst of COVID. And God, we thank you that you've seen them faithfully there and that they're now in a place where they'll be able to rest. Will you help them to adjust to the time and to rest well and to wake up tomorrow um, ready to go and, and ready to, um, to see what uh, you're going to do through their teaching opportunities. Uh, Father, would you, um, w- would you use those chances that they have uh, to teach and to make disciples and to encourage, um, to, um, uh, to grow people in their faith, or maybe even to call people to saving faith, uh, because they hear the gospel, uh, possibly even for the first time and understand it and believe it. Would they be an encouragement to Josiah and Stephanie and the kids, uh, while they're there? And we look forward to celebrating God, what you do, uh, when you bring them home safely, we ask in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so we turn our attention now to the third sola, that we are saved by faith alone. And I have, obviously, again, I just want to plug the books in the Equip Center. Um, these are not intended for you to just read quickly. They're, they're not those kind of books, right? So pick those things up um, and and work your way through them. The faith one is interesting. He, he does a lot of... Um, what I'm going to do a little bit of today, he does a lot of in that book, uh, walking through faith in the different sections of scripture. So how do we see faith represented in the Old Testament? How do we see faith represented in the teachings of Jesus? How do we see faith in what Paul writes and other places in scripture? I think that's probably the, the, the highlight of that book is, is that section. It's all good, but that, that's what, he does a really good job. Of, of showing you what I hope to be able to show you in kind of a little different way today. And that is that faith has always been the plan. That, that salvation by faith alone is not God's plan B. It's not salvation by faith alone if we read from Matthew on, but that salvation is by faith alone from 
the very beginning from Genesis that people were in right relationship with God by believing what God said and believing what, what God had, had told them to be true. Uh, and, and that faith was then, as we see in the life of Abraham, and we'll kind of trace here in a few minutes, credited to them as righteousness. And that this has always been the way that people were saved, that they were saved ultimately in belief and faith in what God has, uh, what either in the Old Testament, what God was going to do through Jesus or through what God in the New Testament, what God has done uh, through Jesus. Now, what I want to do, and I hope this is going to help us, is I just want to pick up where I left off last week. If you weren't here with us last week, we started uh, by thinking about common grace and how God extends his grace, uh, which is his goodness to those who do not deserve it, to those who only deserve punishment. That's how we defined grace last week. And that grace is that, that God extends grace to everybody on the planet, and that's common grace. But then there's also special grace, which is saving grace, that this is the grace that God has towards those who do believe, those who do come to him in, in faith and repentance. And we ended up walking through, which I think is kind of the best picture of grace, uh, second, uh, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through seven last week. And I want to pick up with verse eight. And so really that's how we ended. And this is just going to continue. We'll pick up in verse eight and look at verses eight, nine, and 10, and then kind of spread out from there. So last week we began kind of broad and narrowed it down. This week, I'm going to start narrow and kind of broaden it out. Uh, as we as we go, just because again, I really think faith and grace are two sides of this coin. Like we understand in the way that the best way for us to understand it, the relationship between the two, is to see it uh, in action here in what Paul writes in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. So, uh, for the sake of just clarity and understanding where we are, I want to go back and read verses one through seven. I'm not really going to give you any exposition of that, but I just want to read it. And then I'll start exposition in verse eight. So, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. And then this was, this was the point of exclamation, the parenthetical exclamation that we looked at last week. By grace you have been saved. So all of that builds to this idea that we are saved by the goodness of God, even though we do not deserve it. And raised, he says in verse six, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we as believers live in this perpetual state of grace and we will continue to live in a perpetual state of grace, that grace is what saves us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, um, that, that, and that we look forward to remaining in this perpetual state of grace, understanding that Christ Jesus is seated in the heavenly places and that we uh, will be seated with him and that we will know in the coming ages even more and more about just how 
gracious God was towards us. And that's where we left off last week with, with I think, this, this picture of, um, uh, that, that, we, that is being unfolded to us as we grow in our sanctification and I believe will grow in our glorification, that when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll learn even more about the grace of God, that uh, we may grasp it a little now, but we're going to grasp it even more fully uh, in, in eternity, and that it is this grace of God that his kindness towards us um, even when we don't deserve it, is, is what saves us. Now, if there is a uh, contrast to, to grace, it's merit, right? That, that somehow we deserve God's goodness towards us. And what, what I tried to establish last week is that none of us deserve, not by pedigree, not by birth, um, not by action. Not, there's nothing that in and of ourselves has made us to where God would uh, choose to show his kindness to us, that what we are is children of wrath. And so Paul picks this up in verse eight and he says, for by grace you have been saved. And he's gonna say through faith, but this is why we have to start again with grace because it is it is important for us to understand that the that our salvation, our actual justification, begins here. It begins with grace. It begins with God's goodness towards us who do not deserve it. That while we were helpless, Christ died for us. That while we were ungodly, that while we were all of the things that Ephesians 2 said about us, sons of disobedient, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, um, following the desires of the, the mind and the flesh, um, following the prince of the power of the air, all of these, all of these things that, the, that Paul says we once were, Right In that moment, God decided to have kindness towards us. We're not God decided, that God showed his kindness towards us uh, by choosing to save us. So there is no merit to us. There's nothing about us that deserves the grace of God. And that is ultimately what makes it grace, right? Is that we didn't deserve it, but God gives it to us anyway. What we're going to see by faith is faith kind of has a counteract too, um, but it works a little differently, right? If, if the, the counterpoint to grace is merit, and we have no merit, the counterpoint to faith is works. And I want to start here simply by, by priming the pump a little bit and making sure you understand this, that I'm going to say that we are saved, and I believe the Bible says, and Paul says, and well... This is what the, the, the church, since the Reformation, has preached for 500 years, uh, is that we are saved not by works, but by faith. But that does not make works a bad thing. And we're going to deal with works tonight, and I hope be able to recognize how faith and works actually coexist in such a way, not to where we are saved by our works, but where our works prove our salvation, where our works become the evidence of our obedience to the one uh, who has saved us. Grace and merit don't do that, don't have that same relationship. The, the, you're, just because you're now saved doesn't mean you get to look back and go, oh, God saved me because of, no, 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 God saved you because of him, right? God offered, your gra- God offered you grace because he had mercy upon you, a wicked sinner. 
So we don't want to play the same, we want to have the same, see the same relationship between grace and merit that we will between um, faith and works. But we will see a relationship there, but not one that leads us to say that works in any way saves us. Just as merit does not save us, neither do works. We are saved, verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So we have to ask this question then, what in the world is faith? Let's define the term. And most often when I'm teaching some type of doctrine, whatever that doctrine is, uh, I, I usually define it uh, by giving you either my own definition or somebody else's definition. Um, but when the Bible tells us what a word means, which it oftentimes doesn't do, but in a, on a few occasions, the Bible gives us its own definition. And when the Bible gives us a definition of a word, we ought to just go ahead and go with that definition because that's going to be the best one every time, right? And the Bible does that for faith. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we read the definition for faith. Uh, the author of Hebrews, which we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's the only New Testament book that does not have a traditionally ascribed author to it. There's some really good debate out there about who it could be. I really don't have an opinion on the subject, so I always just say the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this is the Bible's definition of faith. It's two parts. It is an assurance, an internal, this is what assurance means, right? It's an internal belief in that which you are hoping for, Right? And the conviction of things not seen, it is being convinced, that's what conviction is, it's a, it's a conviction, I, I am internally convinced that I have not seen, and for us, it works in both directions, our faith does. It is, I am convinced in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even, I haven't, even though I haven't personally seen it, right? And it looks forward, I am convinced in that which I have not seen that there is eternal life waiting for me as a reward for salvation, that, that Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus will one day return and resurrect the, living from the dead, resurrect the living and the dead, and that we will rule and reign with him for all eternity. I have not physically with my eyes seen either of those things, but I believe them to be true. I, so I have assurance of what I am hoping for, right? And I have conviction of that which I have not seen. This is a great definition of faith. It's the Bible's definition of faith. So faith is required because we have to believe in God and in his gospel. We have, this is, this is why salvation is by faith is, and this is the relationship that faith plays to salvation, uh, is that we, you're not saved unless you're actually believing in something. And this is why those two words, assurance and conviction in Hebrews 11.1 1, are so important. So when Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith, the by grace means that God is doing it. God's the one doing the work that is according to his kindness, that it's not because he's found any merit within us, but he has chosen in his mercy to save sinners. And it is by faith. It is then that we have believed in something. We have placed our assurance and our conviction in something that's not readily available in front of our eyes. If, 
if somebody you're sharing the gospel with or um, maybe, maybe a family member, somebody you've had a long, long-term discussions with over the gospel and all they want is, is more and more and more proof. We'll prove this, prove this, prove that. Look, I, I think this is known as apologetics. I, I think this has its place in the church. I think it has its place in evangelism. There are times we offer apologetic type classes here because we want people to be able to defend their faith. But at the end of the day, salvation is a matter of faith. Meaning you are to be saved. You're going to have to believe in something you've not seen. You're going to have to believe in something that you hope to be true. Now, don't confuse hope with the kind of the way that we think about hope. We think about hope as in like, I hope I get, you know, like a kid hopes they get something for Christmas. That's not the kind of hope that's here. Hope is, is this internal desire for something that's birthed of God and that faith assures us that this thing is then true. If we stay there in Hebrews chapter 11 and just kind of tracing this idea of faith in, we get to verse six and we read, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's talking about God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So again, there's, there's a reiteration here from the author of Hebrews that, that faith is our connection to God and that faith is belief, that we believe God exists. Now, when we get to the end, I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna kind of bring all of this thing together and say that these are the things that are required for us to believe to, to be saved by faith alone, because there are, it's not just believing that God exists, but believing that God exists is part of it, right? It's not just believing that Jesus existed, but that believing that Jesus existed is part of it. There, there, there are a, a number of things that the Bible, we kind of take the Bible as a whole and recognize that we have to believe certain things. And unless we believe those things, it's impossible for us. The author of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. We can think about it like this, without faith, it's impossible for us to be made right with, it's impossible for, for us to be right with God. Because that's what it means to please God, right? To be obedient to him. And we can't do that without faith. We can't come to God if we don't believe the things that God has told us to be true. And as I said a few minutes ago, and this is, this is really, really where I want us to see this that faith has always been God's plan to save people. If you think of the Old Testament as being a book about works-based salvation and the New Testament as being about faith-based salvation, um, you've, you've been approaching the scriptures all wrong all the time, okay? We, we need to approach the scriptures recognizing that it is telling one story where all people are saved by faith in the works that someone else has done for you, right? So absolutely salvation is accomplished by works, just not mine, right? They're accomplished by the works of Jesus, that Jesus did that which I could not do. And I put my faith in the work that Jesus did. And we as New Testament believers put our faith backwards, knowing that Jesus did the work and the Old Testament the saints put their faith forward, not knowing who Jesus would be, not knowing that Jesus would come, but believed that God would do what God was promising that he would do. And Hebrews 11 kind of 
outlines this for us. We get to verse 39 and we see all of these. These are all of the Old Testament saints. That's that by faith chapter, right? By faith, they did all these things. And he says, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So at the end of that, like by faith, by faith, by faith, and, and Abraham and Isaac, you kind of go through this whole the whole story, right, of the Old Testament, or at least a lot of the people in the Old Testament. And here's what he says, that they were commended through their faith, but that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And you say, well, what's the, what's the relationship there? The apart from us, they would not be made perfect is, is the work of Jesus. That's the pendulum upon which, that's the point on which the whole pendulum swings, Okay. The Old Testament people looking forward to Jesus, New Testament people looking back to Jesus. So let's just look at one example of this through Abraham, right? We, last year, preached in Genesis. We spent a lot of time on Abraham. And what do we know about Abraham? That The, the Bible tells us that, that Abraham, in, in Hebrews 11, that Abraham lived by faith. And then the author of Hebrews gives us this example, right? God calls him out of his homeland to go to the promised land, that he's going, to, he's going to make him a great nation, that even in his old age, he's going to give him a child, a child through his wife who had been barren their entire lives, that, that God was going to establish him and, and that through, all, through him, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. Abraham didn't know where he was going in the beginning of the story. He didn't know how God was going to do all of these things that God had promised he was going to do. He didn't know how he was going to become a great nation, how he was going to have the land, how his wife would uh, bear a child. Abraham didn't know how any of this would happen, but Abraham believed God. And the Bible tells us that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness because he believed in the promise of God. Now, when you get to, if we look at Romans chapter four, Paul actually connects Abraham's faith in the Old Testament to our faith as New Testament believers under this new covenant. Romans chapter four, starting verse 20. says, no unbelief made him waver. This is talking about Abraham concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours, New Testament believers. It, was, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So faith has always been the way that God has saved people. So it's not about believing in what you can see that saves you, but believing wholeheartedly in what you can see. And Abraham's a great example of that. You and I are saved in the exact same way that Abraham was saved. Abraham believed he had hope, right? Assurance of hope. He had conviction of that, which he could not see. He had no idea how God was going to do it, but he believed God would do it. And when he believed God would do it, what does the scriptures tell us? It was credited him as righteousness. This is the moment at which Abraham is saved. And if we had time to, to read all of that chapter in Hebrews, here's what we would see over and over again. That's how Old Testament people were saved was that they were, they believed. And then Paul argues in Romans 4 that, that it wasn't just true of them, but it's also true of us and that we're told it's true of them. So we'll understand that it's true of us. So listen, if the Old Testament isn't based off of works, but is based, this is the argument that Paul's making in Romans 4. It's a brilliant argument. Because if you could make an argument for works-based salvation, you would inevitably have to do it off the Old Testament. 
you would have to go to the Old Testament and say, look, these people were saved by works, right? Because we have a whole system of sacrifice and law and obedience and what do you do when you fail and how do you, right? We have this whole system and they operated within that system. So obviously it's works, right? And Paul says, Paul says no, that's not the way that works. Um, it was always through faith. And it's for our benefit that we're told it was always through faith, so we don't make it about works either. So if the Old Testament system wasn't about works, then surely the New Testament system isn't about works, because theirs is set up around a system that looks like works, but it's ultimately their belief in what God was doing through that system, not in their works in, in the midst of it, right? It was Abraham believing that God would do it and it being credited to him as righteousness. Now look, go back, Ephesians 2. We're still in Ephesians 2, I promise. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The second part of that verse. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So again, there is work here. This not your own doing means somebody's doing something, Right? So don't hear me say that salvation is not based on works. It's just not based on your works. It's not based on my works. It's based on somebody else's works. And, it, and again, the, the solas are, are our perspective thing, right? We're saved by faith alone, but God saves us from his perspective, not by our faith, but by his work. That this is what God is doing, that God is the one doing the work of salvation. And that's what the word this in, and this is not your own doing. The, work, the word this is the entire work of salvation that Paul is describing here. He's talking about the salvation of man and says this, so we could read it like this, and salvation is not your doing. The work of salvation is not your doing. It is a gift of God. Remember what we saw in verse four, that God was rich in mercy and that we defined mercy last week. Remember, it was God's goodness towards those in, in, in misery, that he had pity upon us. So God is the author and the perfecter of our salvation. It's not by our will or by our works. It's because of his mercy that he's had upon us. So we go back into Romans, we read in Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it, you're not willing yourself to salvation. You're not trying hard enough. Oh, the people, how many people do you know in your life that, that view salvation in this way that, that, they, that there are, there's all these things they have to do and if they could just do them well enough, right? If they could just try hard enough. And what is the scripture? So that it, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then we have, this begs this question. Let's say that there are two paths. I'm not saying that there are two paths, but let's just pretend there for a minute. Let's say there are two paths. One path that is by faith alone. Seems like the best path to take, doesn't it? <laughs> that it's not going to be dependent on me. It's going to be dependent on God and the work of Jesus. And I'm going to trust in the work of Jesus and I'm going to be saved because that's what we're saying. The Bible says that people are saved by, but let's say there is a works path. And let's ask this question then. Could it then be based on works? Could, could that path even exist? Paul says no. In Galatians chapter two, 
He says this, we ourselves, this is uh, verses 15 and 16 in Galatians 2. We ourselves are Jew by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, get this, no one will be justified. Now remember, the whole reason for the five solas I taught this in week one, is justification. That was like there was, it was all this stuff, historical stuff and false teaching and doctrinal confusion that was going on. Um, but the, the core of it was what makes a person right with God? It's justification. And there is nothing more clear than Galatians 2. Galatians is a great book. If you just want really clear, Paul was angry when he wrote Galatians, by the way. He really was like that. He was super mad at some people when he wrote that. And it kind of reads, um, you know, like when you're trying to make a point on text message, so you use all caps, even though you're not supposed to do that because you're yelling at people, right? If, if, if Paul was writing this in the digital age, it would have been all caps. Okay. That's what, that's what Galatians is. And he, he, cause here's what he's mad about. He's mad that there are some Christians coming to faith. And then this other group kind of swoops in and they're like, Oh yeah, you also got to do all these other things. And they started believing it. And so he writes this letter and he's like, what in the world? Like, didn't we tell you? And this is, so, so he makes, there's some points in Galatians that are more clear than anywhere else in, in the script. Cause Paul's just like, he's writing in all caps. He's like, I'm going to just be really, really clear. I'm not going to be around the bush. And this is one of them because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's what Paul says that, you know, let, let's just remember, we go back to our paths. Let's just assume there were these two paths. There's the faith path and the work path. Paul says, no, anybody, everybody that's trying the works path is going to fail. Everybody that tried the works path before Jesus failed. Everybody that's trying the works path after Jesus is going to fail because works of the law, no one will be justified. It's not going to happen. You're not going to accomplish it on your own. So it's not going to happen, right? It is by, back, back to Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing. Anybody that tries is going to fail. And then he says this, it is the gift of God. What is it? It is the same thing as this. What was this? The entire work of salvation. So yes, faith is a gift of God, but faith isn't the only thing that's being described as the gift of God here. The entire process of salvation is the gift of God. We, we have to get our pronouns correct. Is the entire, it is the entire process of salvation. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in, Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord. The entire process of salvation is a free gift of God. We did earn something, by the way. Your works have earned something. You know what your works earned? Death, that's what you earned, right? For the wages of sin is death. Um, a, a wage is something you've earned, right? That's, that's what a wage is. You go to work at the end of the week, every two weeks, end of the month, whatever. They pay you your wage, right? Everybody throughout like human history have understood the idea of wages, which is why I think Paul uses it here because it's really understand. So, so the wage for our sin is death. We, we, have, we have earned exactly what we deserve. Children of wrath, all of the things that Paul says earlier in, in Ephesians 2. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The entire process of salvation, soup to nuts, gift of God. So we have to see faith is included in that. So we shouldn't just say that faith is 
the only part that's a gift of God. It's all a gift of God, that God is the one doing this. So that begs another question then, why? Why does it have to be this way? Why does it have to be by grace through faith alone and none of this is about us, but all of it is about what God is doing. Why, why, why does it have to be this way? Paul answers that in verse 9. Not a result of works. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. So he, he reiterates there, right? So that no one may boast. That this isn't something that you did. This is something God did. Because it's not about you. And this is where we end, right? When we get in the five solas all kind of interconnect. And this is kind of previewing just a minute, the, the last one, for the glory of God alone. That why is God saving sinners? God is saving sinners for his glory alone. And if somehow the Pharisees could earn their way to God, then that would give them reason to boast. If for some way the legalists of our culture could earn their way to God, it would give them something to boast about. And they, first off, they can't do it. It's impossible to do. With a sinful dead heart, it's impossible to do it anyway. But even if they could, what, what does it ultimately do? It would still glory from God. And so God freely, graciously, with mercy and kindness, loving kindness towards us, gives us faith. He receives the glory. So none of us can boast. So then that leads us to this question. Then, well, if it's not a result of works... And, but, but fully by faith that we, that we believe and all of this is a gift of God, then what do we do with James chapter two? This is going to kind of be a little aside, okay, for a few minutes, but if you will, because if you, if not, you're going to ask me later, so I don't have to deal with it. What do we do with James chapter two? And by the way, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little more next week. The reformers really struggled with this for a little while. So much so that Martin Luther was like, eh, maybe it would just be better if the book of James wasn't in the Bible. That's a true story, by the way. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that story next week. Um, because they, they struggled with it. They were like, we have this really good system here, <laughs> right? By grace, through faith, Jesus alone, glory of God alone. Like, this is great. It's all based on scripture. But we turn to James chapter two and James kind of blows us up here. So what in, the world are, what in the world are we supposed to do? Well, remember, I taught, when, well, I don't remember, all, the, all of this COVID teaching in here has kind of run together for me at this point. At some point, I taught about how to, I taught about hermeneutics. Remember, that's the big word for how to read your Bible. And uh, in that, one of the, I think a whole lesson or a whole, at least a part of it, was dedicated to that scripture interprets scripture. That, that we, we read scripture in the context of scripture. And, and so once we've been convinced of something in scripture, and the scriptures don't contradict themselves. And so in places where the scripture seems to say something in one place and something different in another place, it's not a contradiction. What we have to do is we have to take together what, we've, what we're seeing in the whole story of scripture and, and understand something maybe, maybe a little differently than, than we would have if we were just reading that by itself, right? So let me read the whole passage, or you just read the whole passage from James here. James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, by faith itself, if it, uh, sorry, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scriptures fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, I guess we're wrong then. Time to go home. No. We need to understand what James is saying. Because James is making a James is making a coherent argument. This is James is the word of God, just like Paul is the word of God, just like the gospels are the word of God, just like the Old Testament is the word of God. And we need to take it. It's not secondary. But it is a part of a bigger teaching. It is a part of what the whole counsel of God's word has to tell us about redemptive history and and the story of redemption. And what the Bible tells us, I think clearly, and what we have traced to this point in the first 40 minutes of this, is that we can't save ourselves. And, And that the work of salvation was accomplished by God alone for us and offered to us by his grace that we receive in faith, all of which is a gift of God. So then how does it work for, for James to say that, that even Abraham goes back and uses the same story of Abraham. So he's like, Abraham, right? Uses a different thing, but, but sacrificing Isaac, right? He's like, he was saved by, by works there and Rahab um, <clears throat> with, the, with the spies entering in we have to ask this question about James. What's the argument that, that James is actually making? James is actually making the argument that not that we're saved by faith, but that, or not that we're saved by works, but that works is, the, works is so intricately tied as a result of our faith that it's impossible to separate them that someone that's actually has faith in the living God, someone that has what Hebrews 11, one says that faith is, they have, right, this, this assurance and this conviction that there is a living God who loves them and sent Jesus to die for them and, and that they are now living for him, that it's impossible for this person to say they believe that and to not actually show it in the way that they live. What James is arguing for in James chapter two is not a works-based salvation. He's arguing for obedience as the result of our salvation. So much so to the point where he says, faith apart from works is dead. 
that we're not saved by our faith. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by our faith. But if you are claiming saving faith, but don't show it by obedience, it's like saying to a person, that's why he gives the example he did. It's like saying to a person who doesn't have clothes and doesn't have food, well, I hope you get some clothes and some food, but you didn't actually do anything about it. Did you actually do anything good for that person? No, you didn't do anything good for that person. You didn't give them anything. Faith without works is, is dead. So works are, is the natural extension of our faith. It's, it's how we show that we have faith. Not unto salvation. We don't, we don't do something and then God go, okay, you did enough here, now be saved. We come to God in saving faith and because of that saving faith, then our faith becomes action. Works really is, is faith with legs, right? It's faith doing stuff. That, that's what works is. So, so don't read James and think, well, wait, maybe there is this other way. No, the, there is no salvation through works of the law. It is by grace through faith in Jesus alone that we are saved. But all who have faith and this is, we need to take James too seriously. All who have faith will also have works. Not saved by them, but proving their faith by them. So I got 15 minutes left. There's no way I'm getting through all of this. But I, I, wanna, I'm, I told you, I started last week big and I kind of went small. I kind of started small and I want to go big. Because I want to answer this question then. Because I think some of you are probably asking this by this point. Like, okay, well then how does all this work? Because from a human perspective, right, we have to be able to categorize this somehow and, and compartmentalize it and like, okay, grace and faith and work. How does this actually work when somebody comes to faith in Jesus? How did this work when I came to faith in Jesus? How does it work when you come to faith in Jesus? How does it work when I share my faith with someone? So let's kind of back up then for a little bit, broaden our horizons and talk about something that is known as effective calling. And we don't use this term a lot. It's kind of a doctrinal term, but I think it's going to be helpful for us. So I want to define it for you. This is Wayne Grudem's definition from that Bible doctrine book out there. Effective calling is an act of God the Father. So this is God working, right? Speaking through human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. All right? So if you're saying, okay, how does this work? This definition kind of brings all of these ideas we've talked about tonight and puts them together, right? That God works, it's an act of the Father, speaking through human proclamation of the gospel, which I'm gonna talk about in just a second, in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. So God works, we believe, and that these things aren't mutually exclusive, they're, they're dependent upon one another, God is working, we're believing, Nobody's being saved without faith. Nobody's saying that, okay? Everybody that is saved is saved by faith. Everybody that has faith is saved. But this is a, this is a work of God, that God is the one doing it. So let's just kind of, kind of trace this because when we, when we talk about salvation and salvation by faith alone as being something that is a gift of God that God calls us to, sometimes people get a little uneasy. So let me just show you several places just kind of rapidly here how we see God doing this. This is an act of God, right? Romans 8.30, we're told that God calls us 
then justifies us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see this like progression of salvation from the beginning of time through the end of time, meeting in the present with justification, and that God calls those um, to, to justification. 1 Peter 2, 9, God is calling us into the light, but you are a, royal, or a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That God is calling us out of what we were into something that he wants us to be. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God calls us into fellowship of his son. God is faithful, Paul writes, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, First, uh, First Thessalonians 2, 12, we're called into his kingdom. We exhort you, each one of you, encourage you and charge you in, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his kingdom and glory. So all of these, right? Uh, called and then justified, called into light, called into fellowship of the son, called into kingdom and glory. All of these are describing the same thing. They're describing the effective call of God on the lives of those who believe that God God is the author and perfecter of our faith, that God is the author of our salvation, that he has to initiate a call in the life of people, that he is calling them out of who they are, that the dead, if we just were to use Ephesians 2 language, that the dead need to hear the voice of God calling them to salvation. When did Lazarus get up? Lazarus didn't get up until Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth right? And that's a great picture, a physical picture of a spiritual reality that we are called by God out of darkness into his light, into his kingdom, into his salvation. But that does not negate human responsibility on the Christian's part to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus and on the sinner's uh, sinner's part to actually respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So effective call includes the proclamation of the gospel, right? Effective call is an act of God the Father speaking through human proclamation of the gospel. So the church plays a role in salvation in that we are required to proclaim the gospel to people who believe. Now remember in his first letter in Thessalonians chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says that God calls you into his kingdom and glory. In his second letter, he also says called, but notice, notice the difference here. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, God calls you, but how did God call? God called through Paul and his mission teams, proclamation of the gospel. Romans 10, 14, Jay read this as we were commissioning the ladies to go to Rwanda last week. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Human proclamation is essential to effective call. Yes, God is the one who is working salvation, but we are required to tell people that which they must believe to be saved. Remember the whole theme tonight, and this is about faith, right? And what is faith? It is believing in something. It is an assurance and a conviction in something to be true. And if someone isn't told what they have to believe, what they have to have faith in, they will not be saved. There is no one who has been saved apart from the truth of the gospel being explained to them. Now, maybe it was explained to them 
from a friend. Maybe they heard a preacher say it. Maybe they picked up the Bible and read it for themselves. Maybe they saw it on TV. I don't know. But somebody had to tell them what they had to believe in. Because without a preacher, and use that word not like as in preacher, as in me, but preacher as in us, proclaimers of the gospel, how are they to believe? They can't believe if they've not been proclaimed. So, right, God is the one that's doing the work. He is calling people. How is he calling people though? He's calling people through the proclamation of the gospel. And then when people hear the gospel, what do they have to do? He is summoning people to himself in such a way that they respond then in saving faith, that they receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life, that they believe in faith. And no one will be saved apart from the gospel call and their own willing response. Let me, can I just say that again? No one will be saved apart from the gospel call and their own willing response. Sometimes we want to uh, um, character, characterize uh, certain doctrinal bents, right? Um, and we want, we want to make um, really a straw man arguments. You understand that? Like we want to build up this straw man that we can just beat up and be like, see, this is what you believe. And it's not actually what people believe. And, and so in our tradition... People are often, people often, particularly in places that talk a lot about the Reformation and talk about things like the five solas, and churches that aren't afraid to talk about things like predestination and election. People want to build up this straw man that God is somehow dragging people, kicking and screaming, you know, by their hair into the kingdom and that they're saving, he's saving them against their will. And that's not what anybody, there may be people that believe that, but that's not what I'm saying. That's, I don't think what we as a church think God's actually doing. We think God is, a, I believe God in scripture tells us he is calling people to salvation and that he's using his church to proclaim that. And what Jesus says in John six is true. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I believe that's, that's absolutely a hundred percent true. I think John 6, is scripture and true. No one comes unless the father who sent me draws him. And so there is no one that is saved unless God draws this person to salvation. But I equally believe that John three sixteen is true. That whosoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I can believe both of those things are true. And here's why. Because I believe that salvation is by faith alone which is a gift of God so that no man can boast. <laughs> and so oftentimes what the Bible is describing is based on perspective. And God alone knows where his call is going. This is why after saying John three sixteen, Jesus then goes into the spirit of God moving on people and it being like the wind and we don't know where the wind comes from or where it is going. We don't know where the wind is blowing, right? That's why Jesus used that analogy with Nicodemus in John 3. So he would understand like, I have no idea. You have no idea who's God's moving in their hearts and who God is impressing upon the, their, their depravity and their need for a savior. We have no idea who is hearing the call of the father. So what do we do? We proclaim the gospel to all of those people and we believe that anyone who professes faith in Jesus means it. 
and that they're then saved. And, and so this is, this is why I think it's helpful to kind of end here, kind of backing up then towards this idea of effectual call and seeing how these things go together. Because we can see all of the parts come together if we just recognize there, there are multiple perspectives that are being presented in the scripture. Sometimes the Bible's describing salvation from our perspective, where we believe and we're saved. And sometimes it's being described from God's perspective where God does the work of salvation in someone's life, turns their heart of stone into a heart of flesh, calls them from darkness to light. And, they're and how these two things can go together and it'd be fine. So then let's ask this question. What must a person then believe in faith? I got four minutes, you know. Um, a person must believe the gospel. I think we've been on Wednesday nights, we, I regularly try to interwork the gospel and gospel training into uh, my teaching, particularly on Wednesday nights. And I try to present the gospel in some type of winsome way on Sunday mornings in my sermons. Um, but know this, someone, someone doesn't have to believe everything that you believe. They don't have to agree with everything that you think every, you know, first, second, or every second and third tier doctrine that you believe. But they do need to believe what the Bible teaches is true about salvation. There's one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, uh, fully God and fully man, sent by God uh, to save us from our sins, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, was raised to new life, and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. I think that's a pretty good explanation of, and that we can't save ourselves, but we only come to him in faith and repentance. But so I, that's what a person has to believe. I had more there. Just a person must believe the gospel. They don't have to agree with me on you know, every, every little thing. Not everybody that even goes to church here agrees with me on every little thing. You shouldn't, it's fine. Let me end here though. Um, Cause I, I do want to spend a couple of minutes here because we've seen the, we've seen kind of the relationship of faith to gospel call, the relationship of faith to works, the, the, the relationship of faith, even to grace is where they begin. What about the re- relationship um, to faith and repentance? Is repentance a work? Um, is repentance something that's like post-faith? Is repentance something that's, that's tied to faith? Well, let me first define repentance for you. I think this is also a Wayne Grudem definition. I don't have it documented in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it is. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7. As it is, this is 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 and 10. And as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So I think any genuine gospel proclamation must include an, an invitation that makes, a con, that makes someone conscious of their own sin, invites them to come to faith and to turn away from their sin and to turn towards God. If either the need to repent of sins or the need to trust in Christ for forgiveness is neglected, then there is no full and true proclamation of the gospel and there is no true faith. I, don't, I know repentance is different from faith, um, but faith 
ultimately brings about repentance in our lives. And so the idea that someone can believe in Jesus without actually turning away from their sins, I think is, is a, a dangerous teaching that doesn't have its roots in biblical Christianity. It was actually a very popular American Christian opinion uh, in the late 20th, 20th century. There, there, was, there was a lot of debate over, does someone actually have to turn from sin and self? Can't they just believe Jesus died on the cross for them and, and let that be enough? Um, I, I don't think it is. Now, again, I, I don't view, again, I don't, I'm not reviewing repentance as uh, a, an act. I'm not viewing it as a work. I'm viewing repentance actually as part of saving faith, that part of saving faith is recognizing that you can't save yourself, recognizing that you are a sinner and turning towards Jesus. And actually the word repent is a belief word. It's not actually an action word. You've probably heard people say, you've heard me say it because it's helpful, I think, sometimes for people, right? That repent is, is turning, right? It's turning away. That's not actually what the word means. That's the word picture. The word actually means to change the way you think. That's what the actual word means. The word picture is turning away, right? Like that's the image we get from it. So they're both helpful. But the actual word is really, if you think about it, a faith word, isn't it? To change the way that you think is to start thinking in the direction of God instead of the direction of your flesh. It's to stop doing the first part of Ephesians 2 and to believe in the second part of it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think someone needs to come to faith and repentance. You, you most often will hear me say, those two words together because, because I want people to see, right, that, that repentance is tied in with that, that if we're actually going to say that we believe in Jesus, then believing in Jesus is recognizing something about ourselves is wrong. And we turn away from that. We change the way that we think towards God. And then we have works. We obey. We follow him. Not, we, we do it imperfectly, right? One day, We'll do it perfectly, but now we do it very imperfectly. Um, and when we do, we continue to change the way that we think, not saving ourselves over and over again, but continuing to be sanctified in him. So faith, salvation by faith alone is the idea that God works salvation for us, gives it to us as a gift, and we respond to it by believing in what he has said and what he has done for us as we turn to him for salvation. That is what it means to be saved by faith alone. Let me pray for us. We'll be done. We're out of time. God, thank you. But I'm not trying to climb this mountain based on my works because works of the law can't save anyone. But Jesus did the work that I could not do. And you took this dead heart and gave it life called me to salvation, called us here making up this church into salvation. And because of that, God, we are justified in you, made righteous in your sight. Thank you for the truth of your word today. May it edify us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week. God bless you.